Good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Steve, and uh, I am the, uh, the lead pastor. Um, all the visitors with us this morning uh, for our child dedications, welcome. Glad you're here. Parents, uh, man, what an honor to celebrate with you guys the gift of your children and uh, the blessing that you guys are to our community. And, and um, Lord willing, the blessing our community will be to you. Um, all right, this morning, we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we are going to be taking a look at a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, we're going to spend five weeks taking a look at what is, is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Um, there are people that have never opened their Bibles, uh, but they know this prayer. Um, this is one of the most well-known prayers in the entire Bible. Um, I am hoping that over the next five weeks, we are going to be able to um, get a fresh look at it. Um, I, think, I think this prayer has uh, the opportunity to, uh, in some ways, surprise us and um, invite us into, really, a, a dynamic and powerful new experience uh, of, of fresh prayer. So let's go ahead and head over to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going, Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 811. 811 over to Matthew chapter 6. Now to get ready for our new sermon series uh, on prayer, I decided to do some, some deep uh, scholarly study. Um, so I spent some time on Facebook and um, uh, I asked a, uh, a, a compelling and insightful question. Um, really, I just kind of floated something out there. I'm like, hey, y'all help me out. Um, and I asked this question, uh, what is the single greatest barrier that is keeping you from having a deep and vibrant prayer life? What is the, the single greatest barrier that is keeping you from having a deep and vibrant prayer life? So just take a moment and think about that, follower of Christ. If, if you're not a follower of Christ, um, well, you can think about it too. So I had about 50 people respond to my thread, um, and, uh, and the answers were really uh, engaging and, and very enlightening. Even though we had 50 different answers, they really all came together in about half a dozen categories. Uh, people said it in different ways, but they kind of they boiled down to these six things as I thought about it. Uh, and just real quickly, one was fatalism, uh, this sense that my prayers just don't really matter. Um, it's hard for me to have a vibrant prayer life because God's going to do what God's going to do. One person said, uh, I have a hard time praying anything beyond thy will be done because I just know God's going to do what God's going to do. And, and so, you know, I'll, maybe I'll do it, but, but there's this, this sense of fatalism. God's going to do what God's going to do. I don't really matter in this process. Um, and so it's hard to engage. Um, people, second thing, category was distractions. A lot of people talked about distractions. Um, appropriate on a day with child dedications. Um, there are a few things more distracting or more demanding than children, right? Young parents are like, I can't even go to the bathroom alone, let alone be able to focus to pray. Um, distractions, chaos of life, right? We all carry these things around in our pocket that beep and buzz and blink, um, right? We, we, we not only have all the natural distractions of life, we voluntarily submit ourselves to even more. Um, so yeah, we were very distracted. Uh, the third, people talked about having too much to do, um, which I get, like, like, man, just stopping, like, that means I have to stop being productive to pray, and, and I only have so much productivity time, right? I only have, like, this much margin, 
and, and I got to get stuff done, right? There are things that have to, and so um, that gets in the way. If I pause to pray, I can't stop thinking about the things I'm not doing. Um, and if I go do the things I'm doing, then I'm not pausing to pray, right? Um, another area that was interesting, insecurity. Um, insecurity, and that kind of surfaced in two ways. One, people saying, I'm not sure I'm doing it right. Not, I'm not sure I know how to do it, right? I just feel kind of awkward and strange when I, when I pray. It's not natural for me, and, and it just, I don't know if I'm doing it right. The, the flip side, though, is insecurity that, that you're not quite sure God's going to get it right. Um, there are things like people would say, I've got some things going on. I just, I don't want to pray about them because I'm not sure I trust God with the result, right? I would rather control the result. There are things I know, and I want it to turn out the way I want it to turn out. And I don't like to pray about it because that means I actually have to ask God to take control, and I'm not sure I trust him enough for that. Um, the number one reason, though, the number one thing that floated to the surface that blocked people from having a vibrant, life-giving, intimate experience, regular experience of prayer, um, that people said, this is my main problem, lack of discipline, lack of discipline. That was by far the number one answer. I'm just not disciplined enough. I'm just not focused enough. I'm just, I'm just not um, organized enough. I'm just not. So up front, I'm going to tell you, I, I relate with all of these. Um, as we enter into a sermon series on prayer, this is one of those where I'm honestly preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Um, prayer is hard, and, uh, and I'm not standing up here as somebody who, who's sitting on top of the mountain, some guru who has it all figured out and, and is like, man, I've got the perfect prayer life. You should be like me. Uh, I am stumbling forward like, like most of us. Um, What's funny is I kind of assume at the beginning um, that, that, you know, even with the question, I'm, I'm assuming you do not have a vibrant, regular prayer life. And, um, and I'm not seeing anybody out there like, like, no, man, mine is great. Mine is, I'm perfect. My prayer life is incredible. Because I think all of us struggle with this, honestly. Um, now, there are seasons, right? There are seasons where it's like, oh, no, my prayer life, man, I just, there are seasons. But as far as having a regular prayer life. Um, it's a struggle. Now, here's the thing. As I, as I read through this list of all these responses, there was something that really jumped out at me, something that struck me and grabbed me, um, and it was, it, was, it was the amount of self-reproach that came out in the answers. Just the people beating themselves up. Um, it just kind of bled out. There was just a, this kind of man-I-suck feeling that permeated the thread right? People were just, they weren't just saying, I struggle with this. They were saying, I'm a horrible person. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm a, right? And they weren't saying it necessarily in those words, um, but it was there. It was there. They're basically just saying, man, if I was just more humble, if I was just more dedicated, if I was just more organized, if I was just more spiritual, if I just had more respect for God, then then I would have a regular and vibrant prayer life. And what struck me as I was reading through that is I think underneath all the problems we listed, there's another problem that's the real problem. And it's rooted in that, in that response. We've turned prayer into a to-do item, a do-better-try-harder thing, right? And so the solution with a, with a, with a to-do item is to get it done. 
And so if I'm not getting it done, I need to do better and try harder. And the problem with do better, try harder things is you can never do it enough or try hard enough, right? It, it, is, it is like climbing a mud hill. The harder you work, um, there may be seasons where you get a little bit farther up and you may start feeling really good about yourself and really proud of your accomplishment, but you're inevitably going to slip back down in exhaustion and failure and self-condemnation. That's what I felt what, as I was reading through that thread. Very few people were like, man, I miss prayer. Very few people were like, oh, man, it's life-giving. You know what I heard? I heard a lot of exhaustion. I heard a lot of self-condemnation. I heard a lot of, and it was just coming out. You guys, listen to me. Jesus invites us into something totally different. And over the course of this series, what I hope I can do is invite us into a totally new paradigm for approaching prayer. Um, something that is more free and joyful um, and, and real, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that your prayer life could be so integrated into your life? Your experience of prayer could be, could be so spontaneous that it wasn't work. Can you imagine that your prayer life was so joyful that there wasn't even a hint or a thought about self-condemnation? Can, can you imagine having a deep, intimate encounter with God where you felt loved and you walked away refreshed instead of exhausted? That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the stuff I read about. When I'm reading through the New Testament, man, I hear an invitation to a dance not a command to exhaustion. So we're going to spend the next five weeks digging into this, and, and we're going to be digging into what I hope is, is some of the secrets to a vibrant prayer life that we've just culturally forgotten, that, that in our to-do, do-better-try-harder culture, our, our productivity-centered culture, our go-go-go, do-do-do culture, we've just lost the ability to see it in ways that are free. Um, so that's not an issue of discipline or effort or guilt or self-abuse. It is an invitation to joy and freedom, vibrant life. Because in the end, it's about responding to grace and experiencing love. That's the heart of prayer. It's about responding to grace and experiencing love. All right, so let's take a look at our text. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 5, and we're actually going to go through verse 18. Um, we're going to read each, this passage each week. We're not going to cover this whole passage. We're going to look at specific sections of it each week as we go. But let's go ahead and read the whole thing, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces for the fasting, so that the fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys, um, Jesus comes out swinging um, in this passage, right? Don't be like the hypocrites, right? He's just coming right out. Uh, and this, this would have caused his, his audience to flinch. When he's talking about prayer, um, they took prayer very, very seriously, right? The Jewish culture was permeated with prayer. They had daily prayer times that they were trained. From, from youth, they observed daily prayer times. They had, they had regular corporate prayer times where the community would come together and pray. And that was all on top of their personal prayer times where, where they would just pray to their God. So they were, they were a culture permeated in prayer, and, and they took prayer very seriously. The problem, though, is that, is that their leaders started praying to be seen praying. Because the culture put so much value on prayer, there subtly started to become a temptation not to pray for the purpose of praying, but to pray for the purpose of being seen praying. They started praying on street corners. Uh, street corners would have been the place where two busy streets came together. It was a confluence of a lot of activity and, and movement. And, and these guys would go camp themselves on a corner and, 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 and put on their, their best robes and, and just pray loudly and publicly um, right there uh, for the purpose of being seen as, as pious and, and spiritual. And, and people looked up to them for these things, right? Um, they intentionally put themselves in high visibility places um, because they wanted to be seen, right? Their prayers weren't primarily about talking with God. Their prayers were primarily about affirming themselves. They wanted to be seen and they wanted to be affirmed in what they were doing. Jesus says, look, don't, don't, be, don't be like those guys. You want, you want a vibrant prayer life, here's the first step. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray like them. Don't imitate them. Don't follow their lead. And most of you are like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, right? Um, we don't face the same temptation. I seriously doubt many of you are tempted to go park yourself on the corner of your cul-de-sac, uh, put on your best prayer garb, and, and publicly pray, right, in order to be covered with the affirmations of your neighbors, right? You might be covered with something, but it's probably not going to be the affirmations. Um, people are going to think you're crazy. Um, and they might be a little worried about you, right? And, and so we don't have the same temptation uh, to, to, to this same exact activity, but we do face the same struggle. Our hypocrisy just puts on a different face. Um, the root word for hypocrisy, the Greek word, um, also means actor. And, and that's really appropriate when you think about it, because what does an actor do? An actor pretends to be something they're not, right? I'm a doctor. At least I play one on TV, right? It's like, it's like I put on a face, right? I, I pretend to be something I'm not. I pretend to, I'm doing something, but I'm actually doing something completely different than what it appears I'm doing, 
right? I put on a face and, and I'm being something, but, but in reality, I'm actually something completely different than what I'm pretending to be. Hypocrisy is the, this gap between what I pretend to be, what I pretend to do, and what I'm actually doing. It is a, a crisis of, of authenticity, right? And Jesus is saying, look, let's start here. You want to have, you want to have a, an actual prayer life? You want to you experience real prayer? You want to actually get to the secret of, of vibrancy and life and joy in prayer? Then get the hypocrisy out of it. This is where you got to start. You got to stop faking it. You got to stop acting. You got to stop performing. You got to stop all that, right? If you want to find true joy, true power, true freedom, true life, your prayer needs to be real. So there's a double application here for us um, because I think there, there are two faces we wear in prayer. Um, one is the internal face that we see in ourselves, and, and the second is the external face that we present to God. Because when we're in prayer, obviously it's not like sitting down to coffee with, with a good friend. You're not actually seeing um, your buddy there. It's a solitary experience. And, and prayer is unique, and let's be honest, it's weird. Um, because in prayer, you're, you're, it's this meta experience where you're seeing yourself, perceiving yourself, moving into the presence of an unseen God, right? And having a conversation with that God. And so in that process, you put on a face. You see yourself in a specific way, and you present yourself in a specific way. There are two faces that are taking place. And, and for us to, to reject hypocrisy, it means we need to stop pretending we are who we're not and stop presenting ourselves in a way that's not authentic. We need to stop pretending and performing. We need to stop pretending that we're something other than who we really are. And we need to stop performing for God as if we could earn His favor or somehow gain something from Him by pretending to be something we're not. We need to be genuinely hum- humble in ourselves and genuinely authentic with God. So this week we're going to take a look at the first part of that. What does it mean to be genuinely humble before God or honest with ourselves? And, and what does it mean to be, to be genuinely authentic next week with, with God? We're going to be looking at the authenticity piece next week. For today, if we want a vibrant prayer life, it means we need to foster a humble prayer life, which means the first thing we need to do is talk about what humility is. What in the world is humility? What do we mean by humility? All right, so a few things. First, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Um, Humility is, is not thinking bad things about yourself. Humility is not, you know, it's not humble to beat yourself up, to, to magnify your weaknesses, to exaggerate your, your, your darkness, your, your, you know, those things that we're all ashamed of. You know, there's a spirit, strange spiritual trap here that's actually an inverted form of pride. Um, and it came out a little bit on that Facebook thread. It kind of goes like this. I have an image of myself that I want to be true. I, I see myself in a specific way, and I desperately want that image to be true. And anytime I don't live up to that image, it's an exception. 
Like, like, oh, that's not the real me. Oh, where did that come from? Oh, that really surprised me. That's not really me. I don't know where that came from, right? We, we have this image of ourselves that we desperately want to be true. And, 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 and when we don't live up to it, what do we do? We attack ourselves. We beat ourselves up. We try, we feel and so we humiliate ourselves. <laughs> We're like the dog's owner taking the dog's nose and rubbing it in it, right? You ever done that? You're like, Steve, this doesn't sound familiar. You ever called yourself a loser? You ever had that internal dialogue where you're like, man, I am such a loser. I'm such an idiot. I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. I've disappointed myself. I've let myself down. I, I, am, I am just a complete idiot so ashamed of myself. I insult myself. I abuse myself. There's this weird thought that if I do that enough, um, somehow I can fix myself. Or if I just beat myself up enough, then, then two things will happen. One, I feel like I need to beat myself up because I owe a debt for not living up to my own expectations right? That's called guilt, and guilt is, is an unpayable debt. And so what we try to do to assuage, assuage our guilt is, is to beat ourselves up. Um, this is actually called penance. It is, it is the attempt of, of, through personal suffering, paying a debt um, because we know we've failed in ways that we can't make up for, right? And because we've let ourselves down, we owe the debt to ourselves, and so we abuse ourselves in an attempt to, to somehow make make it better. And, and then beyond that, what we think is somehow this is going to be some really, really powerful, strange motivational speech, <laughs> right? If I can just call myself a loser enough, I'll stop being a loser. If I can just point out my failures enough, if I can just fill my vision with my shame enough, then I'm going to be motivated not to do that thing anymore, right? I'll be closer to my idealized vision of myself. I'll actually be who I know I am, and I'll stop being that other person that keeps letting me down and disappointing me and, and embarrassing me and doing these stupid, stupid things, right? Here's, here's what happens when we do that, y'all. When we do that, does that lead us to greater dependency, openness, and honesty with God? Or does it lead us to greater hiding from God? I would say the latter. When we're beating ourselves up, we're doing it because we feel exposed in ways we don't want to be exposed. And our hope is that we're going to be able to get back into hiding behind our idealized image of ourselves pretty quickly. We don't want to be out there exposed in our weakness, our brokenness, our sin, our failures. We don't want to be there, right? It doesn't lead to greater dependency on God, at least to greater hiding from God. So listen to me, humility is not thinking less of yourself. That's not humility. Humility is not abusing yourself or, or attacking yourself for your darkness, your failures, your weaknesses, and your sin. Secondly, humility is not thinking of yourself less. Now, this one's a little tricky because there's actually um, quite a bit of truth in this. Humble people do think about themselves less than prideful people, Right? I mean, prideful people are always thinking about themselves because they're always comparing themselves to others to find out how they measure up, 
Prideful people are always looking at their job compared to other people's job, their income compared to other people's income, their family compared to other people's family, how their kids behave compared to other people, how other people's kids behave. Whatever it is, however it is that they rank their worth, they're constantly comparing themselves to others to find out whether they should be self-congratulatory or self-condemning, right? So prideful people are always thinking about themselves. Humble people don't think about themselves, right? They don't go through life comparing themselves to others because they don't need to. So it is true that humble people think about themselves less. But that's the result of humility, not the path to humility. And you can't confuse the result of humility with how we get there, right? The the line of thinking here is, if humble people think about themselves less, then I'll be humble if I can just stop thinking about myself so much. So I'm going to be super spiritual, and all I'm going to think about is God. And all I'm going to think about is is righteous things, and I'm not going to talk about myself, and I'm not going to let people talk about me, and and if people compliment me, I'm going to make it really, really awkward because I don't know how to take a compliment because I'm too humble. I can't just say thank you. i got to be like, oh, no, not really. It's all God. Not me. It's God right? And quietly inside, we're still obsessively thinking about ourselves. Because all we've done is taken this weird inverted form of pride and mistaken it for humility. Listen to me. It sounds spiritual, but it's really, really foolish. I mean, let me just give you another illustration, right? Healthy people don't think about their bodies, right? If If your eyes are healthy, do you think about your eyes? No, I think about my eyes, right? Because when I turned 40, bad things started happening, right? All of a sudden, I needed reading glasses. I'm like, how come I can't read these words, right? And then when I hit 45, I'm like, I can't see you back there, right? So I have to wear these things. I hate them. I don't wear these because I just, you know, I have to think about my eyes because there's something wrong with them. Healthy people don't think about their bodies, right? Now, think about if you, if, if you took the same line of logic, right? If, I'm, if I decide I'm 30 years younger one day and decide to go skateboard in a, in a drained pool and, and I fall down and break my leg and I got a bone sticking out of my shin, and I'm like, healthy people don't think about their bodies. So the way to be healthy is not to think about the broken bone and then, and then I'll be healthy. Does that, does that even make sense? We can't mistake the result with the pathway to get there. It doesn't work. So here's what's ironic about this, y'all. People who adopt this mindset, thinking about myself less is what makes me humble. Therefore, I won't, I won't, I won't sing songs that use the pronoun I. I, I I will only talk about God. I'll only think about God. I I will, I will only right. I'm going to get all sanctimonious about this stuff. They're actually being really, really hypocritical because they're putting on a face that isn't real. They're pretending to be healthy in ways they're not healthy, with the thought that if I pretend long enough, I'll fake it till I make it. Listen, the way we become healthy in our bodies is by listening to the discomfort. I don't know if you've realized that yet. God gave you this gift called pain so that you can figure out when things aren't right. Isn't that true? If something hurts, you're supposed to pay attention to it, right? Dudes that are so hard-headed, you never go to the doctor. If something hurts, you're supposed to go find out why. 
right? Pain is God's way of getting your attention to say there's something wrong in your physical body. You're supposed to pay attention to the pain and to the discomfort and, and, and to the things that, that you don't want to be there because you have to pay attention to them for them to become well. It is exactly the same with our spiritual and emotional well-being, y'all. If we're going to be humble, part of the process is learning to become mindful of the discomfort in our own souls, right? We need to become mindful of ourselves, the discomfort, the pain, the fear, the shame. Denying it and pretending that it's not there is not the solution. We have to find out why it's there. We need to figure out what's going on there. We have to learn how to actually, in prayer, in honesty, come to the physician of our souls, right? Not pretending to be well, but being honest in our sickness. Otherwise, we just end up pretending those things aren't there, presenting, pretending that we're healthy and humble. All right, so humility is not thinking less of yourselves. Humility is not thinking about yourself less. Then what is humility? Very simply, humility is being honest. Humility is thinking honestly about myself. Humility is rooted in honesty. Humility is is seeing myself accurately without a need to embellish or pretend, to puff up my strengths or to hide my weaknesses, to, to make sure I've got a resume that I'm pushing out to myself or to God or to my community or to my neighbors. Look at, look at my strengths. Please don't look at my weaknesses. They don't really exist, right? Humility, is, humility is, is this radical embrace of the honesty of who you are with all of your light and all of your darkness, with all of your strengths and all of your flaws, with all of your virtues and all of your vices. It's seeing yourself accurately and honestly. Because it's the only way you can actually come to God with honesty. Paul defined humility in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, he's going to give a list of spiritual gifts. And he says to the church, man, God gave you these incredible gifts for you to use for the good of the body. And, and, and some of these gifts are really, really public, and some of these gifts are really, really private. Um, but here's the thing, for you to use your gift effectively in the church, this spiritual gift, it needs to be rooted in humility. And, and I want you to pay attention to how, how he defines humility. In, in Romans 12, 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Humility is thinking of yourself with sober judgment. What's the opposite of sober judgment? Uh, Drunk judgment? Tipsy judgment? What happens when you're drunk? Do you see things accurately? It's like that t-shirt, the more you drink, the better I look, right? Um, we don't see things as they actually are when, when we're under the influence of an outside intoxicating agent. We see things the way we want them to be. We see things through the, the, the haze of our intoxication. What we want to look good looks better. What we want to look bad tends to look worse. What's the intoxicating agent that Paul is warning us against? It's pride. Pride. 
Pride is the intoxication of the soul. Humility is the antidote to being drunk on pride. Humility is, is a sober judgment. It, it rejects the distorting effects of pride so that you see yourself accurately, right? You don't see your strengths as stronger than they are, and you don't see your failures as more devastating than they are. You are not puffed up by your strength. You are not crushed by your weakness. You see yourself clearly. Humility, then, is rooted in a radical, uncomfortable honesty. Because if we're honest, most of us do not want to see ourselves exactly as we are. We love the idealized vision we have of ourselves. We like to see ourselves in our best light. We like to see ourselves with, with, with our, our strengths magnified and our weaknesses hidden. We, we like to see ourselves as those who, who were good to begin with and are consistently getting better, right? That's how we like to see ourselves. Humility equips me to be honest with myself. Humility equips me when I see darkness in my soul that I didn't even know was there 10 years ago. Right? It, it allows me to, to um, and I don't know if you guys realize this yet, um, you're way worse than you think you are. Right? I'm just, you are. So am I. God in His grace doesn't show it to you all at once. Right? Some people are like, man, I'm so bad. I'm, I was so much more spiritual just a couple years ago. I, everything was so good then. I don't know why it's so bad now. And it's like, maybe you're not getting worse. Maybe God's just showing you more of who you really are. Maybe God's like, okay, you've grown a little bit. Let's give you a little bit more vision of what's actually going on in your heart. Because it's darker than you know. Humility is what equips you to continue that journey of recognizing how much you need a Savior and how great a Savior He actually is. It is our pride that distorts our vision. Humility is sober judgment. Humility is what allows me to take off the mask that I wear and be honest with myself when I meet with God. If I am not humble in my prayer, I'm not praying. All right? This is how this all relates to prayer, y'all. Um, I think one of the greatest barriers to entering into a real, vibrant, joyful, life-giving experience of prayer, something that is spontaneous and not work, something that is life-giving and refreshing instead of draining and exhausting, I think, I think the greatest barrier is not our lack of discipline. It is, it is not the distractions in our life. It is not the chaos. It is not, it is not any of these things. It is our inability to be honest with ourselves our absolute addiction to putting on a face and needing to see ourselves in a specific light because we're so afraid of the shame that comes with being exposed as we truly are. Our inability to be honest with ourselves puts us in a situation where we simply cannot be honest with God. And so what ends up happening is we insist that God meet with this better imaginary self. <laughs> in prayer, um, what, and, and you know this, when you're exposed in your shame, are you quick to run to prayer or run away from it? When, when you do something really, really dumb and you're like, oh, there's that thing again that I thought I had stopped doing. 
Are you quick to run into the presence of God? Or are you like, no, I've got to beat myself up for a little while before I can earn my way back into His presence? That's hypocrisy. That's you. I've got to put the mask back on before I see you, God. I'm feeling a little too exposed. The mask is off. You can't see me right now. I've got to put my makeup on. I've got, I got to put my best self back on. It's like we're trying to meet with God face to face, but we're not showing up with our real face. We're showing up wearing a mask and insisting that God talk to the mask and not to us. That's exhausting, y'all. That doesn't sound like a, a dance of joy and of love. That sounds like an exhausting performance. No wonder we hate prayer. No wonder we despise prayer. No wonder prayer is hard and we wish we valued it, but we don't actually value it because that's exhausting. Listen, long before the Jewish leaders were on the corner being publicly inauthentic in their religious actions, long ago they had started building private false identities masks that made them feel like they didn't need grace. Long before we become publicly unauthentic, we become privately inauthentic. It is the, hum- it is the rejection of humility in our souls that leads to an inauthentic expression of religious behavior. Because once we've built this false identity, we have to protect it. So I want to introduce us this morning to a prayer of humility. Um, And here's why. (laughs) Because this is what we do. As soon as I say, hey, prayer, prayer is not an issue of discipline. Prayer is an issue of desperation. That's a quote from Paul Miller. Great quote. He wrote a book on prayer. It's phenomenal. And it is true. Think about it right? If you're desperate, do you pray? Yeah. Even if your face is messy and your mask is off, do you pray if you're desperate? Absolutely, right? You pray when you're desperate. It's not an issue of discipline. It's an issue of desperation. If you need God's presence, you will come into God's presence, right? But here's what happens. As soon as we hear that, then we put, you know, that, that um, I need desperation, so I put it on the top of my checklist. I need to be more desperate, That's something I need to do better, try harder, right? I need to make this happen, right? So as soon as I say humility is the foundation of genuine prayer life, what we want to do is put humility onto our checklist and say, all right then, I'm going to get serious about humility. I'm going to do better and try harder. Okay, y'all, that's not how humility works. You can't do it better. You can't try it harder. That's the wrong paradigm. That's the paradigm of pride and performance. Humility is a fruit that comes from being honestly connected to grace. It is not something you work to produce for God. It is something God produces in you as you simply respond to His love. 
as your pride is undone by His grace. So let me just introduce you to one final story and one powerful prayer that I want to leave us with this week. Jesus told another story about a different Pharisee and compared him, uh, the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. Many of you may be familiar with this story, um, but it's another story about a Pharisee praying, and, and it has a, a strong tie-in. Let me just put it on the screen, and, and we're going to move through this. Um, this is from Luke chapter 18. Um, Jesus um, told this parable, and he said this, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pray fat, I, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. That's a really weird prayer, y'all. That sounds a whole lot more like a resume, doesn't it? Like this isn't even a prayer. This is just a self-congratulation speech. Hey, Lord, I tried harder and I've done better. I put it all on my checklist and I got it done. And I'm proud of myself and I'm here because I know you're proud of me too. I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm really, really glad because I know you're patting me on the back too. Right? Listen to me. If, if you could actually get more disciplined, if you could actually accomplish your to-do list, your spiritual to-do list, you wouldn't be more spiritual. You'd be this. You'd be so puffed up and distorted and drunk on your pride that you didn't even know that God wasn't there when you're praying to Him because you're honestly just praying to yourself. Now compare this to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you don't read this carefully, you might think that the tax collector is doing that first thing we talked about, thinking less of himself, that he's kind of beating himself up, right? When, when someone says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, it sounds like he's kind of beating himself up, and that's a complete misreading of what's happening here. The tax collector isn't beating himself up. The tax collector understood his need for grace. And he was desperate in his need for mercy. So much so that he can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Right? The Pharisee is standing right in the center of everyone where everyone can see him, looking up at heaven, praying boldly so that everyone will see him. This guy's out on the outskirts. His eyes are down in his need for grace and in his need for mercy. He is just standing there. But listen, he's standing there. He's not being presumptuous, he's not being pompous, he's not being prideful, but neither is he being self-condemning or self-abusing. He's being honest in his need and bold in his faith. He knows how desperately he needs mercy and he comes to God, the God of mercy, and says, give it to me. You are the God who loves, love me. You are the God who gives grace, give grace to me. You are the God of mercy, give mercy to me. This is not self-condemning and this is not self-congratulatory. This is humble. I have a need and you're the God who meets the needs. Man, I got so much darkness. I got so much hurt. I have so many problems. I sin all the time. 
But you're the God who loves me. You're the God who delivers me. You're the God who gives mercy and grace. Meet me in my need. There's no self-absorption in that prayer. There's no self-abuse. There's no self-hatred. It is a bold and humble plea to the God of steadfast love. Love me. You are the God of mercy. Give mercy to me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm in desperate need of grace. Give me grace. Jesus said that man went home justified. I think that says a whole lot, not just about how God sees him, but about how he's experiencing God. Do you think the tax collector went home with joy? Do you think he he left that place more exhausted than when he showed up? Do Do you think he left with this great burden of, man, prayer is just hard work? Or do you think, do you think he went home with joy and life and and vibrancy being renewed in his heart because the God of mercy met him in mercy and the God of grace met him in grace. He showed up in honesty, and in honesty, God gave him grace. There was a reality, a vibrancy, a truth to that exchange. We've got to be honest. No need to pretend, no need to perform, no need to boast, no need to hide. The very first step in having a vibrant and joyful prayer life is having a courage that is born of faith. See, there are two implications that come from this prayer. One is I have a need that's greater than I know, and two, I have a Savior who's greater than I think. No matter how great my need is, you are a greater Savior. No matter how dark my sin is, I have a, I have, you have paid the price. No matter how much I need mercy, no matter how many times I have to come back for grace, there is an infinite supply that comes from an infinite God. This is a bold prayer. This is a prayer that recenters you on grace. So here's my, here's, here's my parting challenge for us this week. Don't, don't put humility on your to-do list. Because humility is not something you can do. Put on your to-do list to remind yourself regularly to bring yourself back to this place of needing and receiving mercy. So anytime this week you are tempted to beat yourself up and self-condemn, Instead, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every time you feel tempted to look down on someone because they don't do something as well as you perceive yourself as doing it, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every time you find yourself outclassed by life, swimming in waters deeper than you know how to navigate, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Every time you succeed and achieve something well, instead of being destroyed by your success and puffed up in your pride, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
This week, let's embrace this prayer. It's simple. It's short. But it is powerful because it communicates both my need and his provision. And it reminds me in my success that I can never outmatch my need for mercy. And it reminds me in my shame that I can never sin so much that I'm beyond his reach. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Will you commit with me this week? Just, let's just do this. Let's not try to fix all the problems of the world or all the problems of our soul. Let's not add anything new to our to-do list other than this. Let's, let's just commit to praying this prayer a thousand times a day for the next seven days. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's start there. Because true humility is born from responding to the love of God. And this prayer leads us again and again and again to the beauty of the gospel where once again we can respond. All right, you guys, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And uh, we'll respond through communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father God, I, and I thank you for this invitation back to sanity because that's what humility is. Instead of being drunk on our pride, distorting reality and our need to, to exaggerate our strengths and hide our weaknesses, you invite us back to the sober reality of being those desperately in need of mercy. But having a God so great that he is infinitely rich in mercy. We are those desperately in need of the grace of forgiveness and of pardoning and of renewal and recreation. And in the work of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, we have an infinite supply of grace. Lord Jesus, be merciful to us sinners. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion together in a moment.